Reflections on Homer's Iliad Produced by the Cornerstone Forum and narrated by Gil Bailey Part 2 Achilles is decommissioned next to his ships. He cries for his mama, Thetis, the goddess of the sea goddess, and she comes and visits him. And we learn at this point something we didn't know about Achilles until now, and that is that he is doomed to have a short life. And that he had thought that the uh, compensation for that would be honor and glory. And now he has been cut off from the field of battle, which is the only place where he can establish for sure his honor and glory, and that is to say, his immortality in the minds of men after he dies. And so we get now a sort of ticking of the clock for Achilles, in addition to the other dynamics that are going on. Achilles asks his goddess mother Thetis to go and ask Zeus to take the side of the Trojans, that is to take his enemy's side, in order to show the Agamemnon and the Argive troops that you don't insult Achilles' honor and get away with it. In short, what he has done, we ended last week talking about Ernest Becker's twin ontological motive to assert oneself and to surrender oneself to something larger than oneself. In asking Zeus to take the side of his enemies, Achilles has abandoned any hope of the second ontological motive. That is to say, he now no longer has a cause bigger than himself. As a matter of fact, the only possible cause bigger than himself, he has just sacrificed to his own self-aggrandizement. Namely, he has asked the Father God to take the enemy's side in order that his honor might be restored. So his honor over, takes greater precedence than the welfare of his fellow soldiers and the Argive cause. Homer, of course, is concerned with murderous aggression. That's what the poem is about. And war is the epidemic of that aggression. And one of the things that's going on is a groping artistic search for something short of war or on the other side of war that would speak to the dynamics that give rise to war. He pictures this contention in the Argive camp as the paradigm of all conflict. And then he gives us a picture of two places where the conflict finds a resolution. The first is a brief description of Odysseus taking Chryseis, the daughter of the, uh, the priest of Apollo, back to Chrysi, and a little description of what happens there. What happens there is that Chryseis, the priest, unprays his prayer for a plague. They offer a blood sacrifice to Apollo, from the carcass of the sacrificial anim animals, they have a feast, the wine flows, they begin to sing, and finally, exhausted, they go to sleep. I'll read the lines to give a sense of, and this is a, a picture of something that happen, can happen in a place like Chrysi, which is the conflict can be resolved peacefully. They feasted to their hearts content and made desire for meat and drink receipt again. When young men filled their wine bowls to the brim, ladling drops for the God in every cup. Propitiatory songs rose clear and strong until day's end to praise the God Apollo as one who keeps the plague afar and listening, the God took joy. Quite distinct from what's happening more often than not in the, in the Greek and Trojan context, which is that the blood sacrifices are not working. 
here in Chrysi, it worked. And then the poem says, After the sun went down and darkness came, at last Odysseus's men lay down to rest under the stern housers. Sleep. The proper ritual sacrifices, feasting, drinking, singing, and sleep. That's the way to resolve conflict. In between these two pictures of resolved conflict, we get a picture of Achilles. Now we have to, first of all, before we get to that, let me say, what happened in Chrysi can't happen to the, to the Greeks and Trojans. Because Chrysi is still a traditional culture. That is to say, the rituals are still working. The primitive cult rituals are still working. Unconsciously resolving the excess aggression and libido and, and allowing culture to have a place. It's no longer working for the Greeks and the Trojans and, they're min- and it's no longer working for us either in some way. Th- this is a poem, of, as all great works of art, most great works of art have to do with cultural transitions. This is a poem about a cultural transition. The Greeks and the Trojans can't do it that way anymore. I would suggest that their cultural fabric has come unraveled where a lot of cultural fabrics unravel, namely on the fields of a protracted and inconclusive war. The war itself is a symptom of an approaching cultural collapse. And the protracted and inconclusive nature of the war makes that collapse palpable. And so the Greeks and Trojans there on the shores of Troy are experiencing a cultural breakdown and all of the psychological and social and political ramifications of it. So they can't go back to crazy. They would all like to go back to crazy. If we read this story, we would all like to go back to crazy. It's not available. So we come back and get a picture now of Achilles after that picture. Meanwhile, unstirring and with smoldering heart, Achilles waited his valor stalling in his breast. So that's not solving his problem. Next, we go to Olympus and watch a contention brew there and get resolved. The contention really is a mirror image of the contention happening on the ground with the Greeks and Trojans. Namely, Thetis goes back and gets Zeus to agree to take the Trojan side, causing Hera and Athena to oppose him. Hera's his wife. She always opposes him as a matter of principle. And there's great contention. Hera wants to see the Trojans defeated, of course. Zeus threatens violence to Hera, somewhat obliquely. She sits down and, and uh, realizes that he has more power than she, but it's very tense, very tense situation, very much like Achilles sitting there. It's not resolved. It must be resolved. Hephaestus, the old crippled craftsman god, who plays a very interesting role in Homer's pantheon, stands up. Now remember, at, when the crisis was most at its peak on the ground inside the Greek camp, Nestor stood up. And the first thing Nestor said, the old uh, speechmaker, the first thing Nestor said was, a black day this. So now we have Hephaestus standing up. And his first words are, oh, what a miserable day. If you too raise your voices over mortal creatures more than enough already, must you bring your noisy bickering among the gods? Now, watch Hephaestus performing 
the resolving ritual. He made Hera smile, and the goddess white-armed Hera smiling took the wine cup from his hand. Then dipping from the wine bowl, round he went from left to right, serving the other gods nectar of sweet delight. It was said of Nestor that uh, his words were like honey, but here Hephaestus is actually serving the real stuff, the nectar of sweet delight. But he is performing the menial task reserved for little girls and boys or the household slave. So he is performing that menial task. And they begin to snicker at him because he looks like such a fool and an idiot. And quenchless laughter broke out among the blissful gods to see Hephaestus wheezing down the hall. In the face of the potential violence, Hephaestus, with a tremendous sense of self, one sufficient to, to be able to take on ridiculous roles without, uh, without embarrassment, takes onto himself the scorn, turns it into snickers, uncorks the wine, passes the wine around, turns the snickers into chuckles and the chuckles into good-hearted laughter and puts the world back together again. Hephaestus. Keep your eye on Hephaestus. I keep, I'm, keep seeing this other thing happening over here, which is the Hebrew version of this. Much more solemn, the Hebrew version. But I see Hephaestus as a sort of second Isaiah with, with an Olympian sense of humor. <laughs> and he takes all of that contention and scorn and ridicule onto himself and grounds it like a lightning rod into the ground. And pretty soon, the same thing happens. Feasting, wine drinking, or in this case, nectar drinking, singing, and sleep. So the gods know how to do it. Except that you need a Hephaestus. And everything in the heroic code militates against the Hephaestus option. Nobody wants to lose face and to be snickered at. Here's what happened. So all day long until the sun went down, they spent in feasting and measured feast matched well their heart's desire. So did the flawless harp held by Apollo in heavenly songs inquiring antiphon that all the muses sang. And when the shining sun of day sank in the west, they turned toward, they turned homeward, each one to rest. Each to that home the bandy-legged, wondrous artisan Hephaestus fashioned for them with his craft. And then we find out that Hephaestus is the one who made their home. Literally and symbolically makes possible the communal spirit in which it is, it, civilization can happen. The Argives and the Trojans cannot return to Chrysi and the traditional civilization. And their code strongly represses any Hephaestus uh, manifestation. What do they have to bring some kind of resolve into this contention? Well, they have only the staff. And we talked about the staff last week. In book two, Zeus decides to take the Trojan side. But the way he's going to do it is to give Agamemnon a false dream of immediate victory over the Trojan. Agamemnon is so reassured by this dream that he wakens, sits straight up in bed, puts on his finest brand-new tunic that he's never worn before, straps on his, his uh, finest sandals, his great sword, and great, grabs hold of his dynastic staff. It's as though he's given a new lease on life, you see. He's just come in first in the, in the Iowa caucuses. 
and now he is, he feels like he's going to win the world. He marches out knowing now he's been told in the dream. He doesn't quite believe it, that he's going to win over the Trojans immediately. He decides for some strange reason to impose on the Argive troops a test. He will suggest that they go home. The war's been too long and they go home. And he tells his captains, he says, now when I tell them we're going to go home, you guys immediately chime in with your best patriotic speeches about why we ought to stay here and fight on. And that way, hearing your speeches, the troops will rally. He holds the staff. We're trying to get this. We no longer have these other options, the, the traditional and the Hephaestus option. What we have now is the staff. Can it work? He holds the staff, and we get the, the lineage of the staff. Before them now arose Lord Agamemnon, holding the staff Hephaestus fashioned once and took pains fashioning. Well, if you can't have Hephaestus, maybe his staff. Maybe that will help resolve this contention. Hephaestus fashioned it and took pains fashioning it. It was a gift from him to the son of Kronos, lordly Zeus, who gave it to the bright pathfinder Hermes. Hermes handed it on in turn to Pelops, famous charioteer. Pelops to Atreus, and Atreus gave it to the sheep herder Phaestes, he to Agamemnon, king and lord of many islands, of all Argos, the very same, who, leaning on it now, spoke out among the Argives. Tremendous solemnity here. You can't get a better pedigree than that. This staff is the, re is the human equivalent of the tradition itself. And at this moment, they have the tradition to rely on, the traditional authority, cultural authority to rely on with that kind of impressive credential. And it says, with all of that solemnity behind it, Agamemnon is now leaning on that staff, figuratively and literally. And then he speaks, and what he speaks is a lie. He dissembles before the troops and says, let's go home. So already we know the staff is in questionable hands. You don't have that kind of pedigree and hold on to it and lie. And he says, let's go home. And as the chieftains are clearing their throats to make their, their great patriotic speeches, the troops have left, running madly towards the ships. They don't get a chance to make their... They're ready to go home. Thank you. So things are quickly dissolving. Athena comes to someone she can rely on, Odysseus. It's great that Homer chose Odysseus for his second uh, great epic because he's a fascinating character. She says, Odysseus, it's up to you to turn this situation around. Notice what he does. Knowing the goddess's clear word when he heard it, Odysseus broke into a run. He tossed his cloak to be picked up by his lieutenant and wheeling close to the silent figure of Agamemnon, relieved him of his great dynastic staff, then ran on toward the ship. How easy, how simple. He simply ran up to Agamemnon and took the staff and ran off. And Agamemnon said not a word. This is the same thing being played out at a different level. Natural authority in the form of Odysseus and cultural authority in the form of that staff or Agamemnon but now, natural authority doesn't challenge cultural authority. It simply takes the instrumentality in order, momentarily at least, to unite those two authorities. And for a moment, they are united in Odysseus. 
One would hope that they would be united forever. They won't be. But for a moment, they are united in, in Odysseus. Odysseus gives a speech that is an amazing paradox. Let there be one commander, one authority, holding his royal staff and precedence from Zeus, the son of crooked-minded Kronos, one to command the rest. So he himself, in his commanding way, went through the army. What irony, what, what paradox. He just took the staff away from Agamemnon, and now he's giving a speech saying there's only one man here to hold this staff, and that's Agamemnon. And he's holding it, giving the speech. And there's even more irony than that because he said the power of this staff comes from Zeus and the little patronymic that's used there is the son of crooked-minded Kronos reminding us that Zeus got into power by overthrowing the, the old tyrant. So the very speech in which he is insisting on respect for authority has two elements in it his own snatching of the staff away from Agamemnon and his reference to Kronos have two elements in it suggesting that sometimes you have to overturn that authority. Tremendously complex poetic passage. Stability and change. Stability and change. Even though it may have to change, we can't change it in such a way as to destroy the respect for some kind of authority ultimately. Then... Thersites comes up. He's a foot soldier. Thersites is a despicable character. But he has heard Achilles shouting these things at, at Agamemnon, and he thinks he'll give it a try himself. Mostly, Thersites is interested in playing to the crowd. But notice that Homer has uh, poetically compared him to Hephaestus bow-legged with one limping leg and shoulders rounded above his chest, he had a skull quite conical and mangy fuzz like mold. Well, one thinks we just got a picture of Hephaestus being crippled and ugly and funny-looking. Thersites does the opposite of what Hephaestus does. Namely, instead of resolving the conflict, he throws fuel on it. Notice, though, he's really talking to the crowd. He berated Agamemnon, the poem says, at whom, in fact, the troops were furious. So he's got his eye on the opinion polls as he's talking, facing Agamemnon. And then he starts accusing Agamemnon of getting all the benefit and having the foot soldiers do all the work. It's a version of Achilles' speech. So he's also being compared to Achilles. He, he's performing the opposite function to Hephaestus and the exact same function as Achilles except that he is not one of the peers. He is an unscrupulous guy doing it in order to appeal to the, to the common soldiers, not out of any principle. He almost, he mimics something that Achilles had said, but he emphasizes a great deal. That most of his speech has to do with how he perceives it that Agamemnon really has in mind getting all these women. And uh, maybe all he's interested in is getting more and more concubines and always the best ones. And of course, the foot soldiers have to have to sweat and die in order to make that possible. There's great emphasis on the women. The heart of the poem is how potent the uh, sexual element can be in a warrior's psychology. You see, it was actually the taking away of his concubine that caused Achilles and Agamemnon to fall into this great turmoil in the first place. It's being emphasized here again. 
Odysseus uses the staff symbolically to indicate its cultural purpose. At this he struck him sharply with his staff. On ribs and shoulders, poor devil quailed, and welling, a welling tear fell from his eyes. A scarlet welt raised by the golden-studded staff sprang upon his back, then cowering down in fear and pain, he blinked like an imbecile. Powerful poetry. But that's a, that's a symbolic image of what the staff can do. But you see, when the staff has to resort to that, it has already lost its authority. The staff can be used for that. You see, just, just, as, just in the sense that the commander and chief can bring in the National Guard or the Air Force. But once it gets to that point, the authority has gone out of it. It's being used as a blunt instrument and not as a symbol of authority. The question is, are the troops... Then Odysseus gives a speech to the troops holding the staff and he rallies them. The question is, do they obey Odysseus because of the staff, cultural authority, or because it's Odysseus speaking who has natural authority? Well, here for once, it's both. They're together. They're back together again. But they won't remain united very long. They're to get, it, it happens in history that, that the cultural authority and the natural authority resides in one person for a while. It's always a glorious historical moment, but doesn't last long. We can all think of our favorite times in history. In Hebrew history, it's when Samuel was the ruler of the people. He had both the natural prophetic authority and the, the cultural bestowed authority. But it, it, didn't, it wasn't true before Samuel's time, and it wasn't true after Samuel's time. So it's a, it's a wonderful, glorious moment in history, and it ha lasts here about five minutes in the poem. The staff is, is, in a sense, all that they now have, uh, but you, you will now see both sides uh, beginning to go to work on other artifacts. It's a little bit like, you know, when the queen bee dies, uh, one of the drones does something or other to one of the little larvae, and uh, the, the new queen bee starts to be formed. Right? Well, what is, what is going to be the source of uh, integrity and coherence? to salvage this situation from further contention. The staff is not working. And then there's this interruption for the catalog of ships. That is to say, all of the Greeks who so sailed, and most of us don't like reading this passage because it's so boring and repetitious. And It's not really repetitious, but it is, if I may say so, a little boring because it just goes on and on. But what you have to realize is that for Homer, people say, well, this is inserted here. But um, Homer put it in for a very good reason. Namely, it's a word from the sponsors. You see, he's singing, he's singing this song to uh, the, the the barons of his of his society, uh, coming from the great families, and so he's now going to say, "Well, let me tell you who was involved in this war. The whole world, the whole Greek world. That's who was involved. So it is really the the the, the world war, but also." Uh, your family and your clan and your island, people from your island, and da 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 da. So everybody gets, they get to hear their clan or their nation or their their uh, tribe alluded to. So it draws them in. They say, "Hey, this is a story about me." So uh, it's to some purpose. I'll come back to one little episode in it in a minute. But 
Book three begins with a fabulous picture of mist. Like mist, the south wind rolls on hills a blowing bane for shepherds, but for thieves better than nightfall. Mist where a man can see a stone's throw and no more, so dense the dust that clouded up from these advances advancing hosts as they devoured the plain. So first of all, you get a picture of a mist that is a bane to the shepherds because they lose their sheep in it. But it's it's a good thing for the thieves. It's better than night for the thieves. And then we find out the other thing about this mist. First, then we find out that the mist really is the soldiers marching. You see, imagine now the psychological mist that comes up when we hear the great marching music and the great Wagnerian strains and the clunk, clunk, clunk of the troops. That's the mist, the psychological mist that comes up around that. And it is a mist that is a bane to the shepherds. Remember, the shepherds are the, are, are the original holders of the staff. That is to say, the ones who know how to take care of the sheep. And then it says, in this mist, you can see far enough to throw a rock, but no further. Uh, to me, what it said was, this is the kind of psychological mist in which you can see far enough, or the, this is the kind of consciousness in which you can see well enough to deploy a missile, but not well enough, as a shepherd needs to see, to take care of the welfare of the flock. So it's one of those kind of mists, in case you ever come upon one. And then we get our first picture of Alexandros, who is Paris. That's the other name for Paris. And nearer and nearer and nearer the front ranks came till one from the Trojan front detached himself to the first, to be the first in battle. Now look at him. Vivid and beautiful Alexandros wearing a cowl of leopard skin, a bow hung on his back, a long sword at his hip, with two spears capped in pointed bronze. He shook them and called out to the best men of the Argives to meet him in the melee face to face. Ah, oh, this is our boy. This is Alexandros, Paris. We don't notice it because we're not, we're not briefed on these things, but he is not dressed for hand-to-hand -hand combat. He's carrying a whole assembly of things, some of which are appropriate and some of which are not. He's carrying a bow and arrow. That's not appropriate, particularly in the code, the honor code. He's wearing, he's wearing not armor, but uh, a leopard skin. He's dressed up for a parade. See, this marching that, that Homer says is a mist that comes over things has come over him as a mist. He thinks it's a parade. He's strutting around all decked out and he gets caught up in it like we all do. And so he says, you Greeks over there, you guys over there, let the best of you come out here for a face-to-face -face combat. Now remember, he stole Menelaus's wife, Helen. Here's the line. Menelaus knew him and thrilled with joy. Now we've got to investigate psychologically that line. Menelaus saw Paris, who had stolen Helen, and thrilled with joy. 
Ernest Becker, in a book called Escape from Evil, wrote this, We can talk for a century about what causes human aggression. We can try to find the springs and in animal instincts, or we can try to find them in bottled-up hatreds due to frustration or in some kind of miscarried experience of early years of poor child handling and training. All these would be true, but still trivial, because men kill out of joy. This poses an immense problem for social theory, a problem that we have utterly failed to be clear about. If men kill out of heroic joy, in what direction do we program for improvements in human nature? Menelaus saw him and thrilled with joy. Now, this poem is about the Greek word menis, which means something like vengeful self-assertion. And Homer, who Loomis calls the first psychologist, is now going to reveal a few of its component parts. Menelaus thrilled with joy. What does that emotion that Menelaus is having right there what does it look like in its larval stage? During the catalog of ships, there was a brief reference to Achilles. It said, Achilles lay amid the ships in desolate rage for Briseis, his girl with her soft tresses, the prize he captured. For her, his heart burned lying there. Desolate rage is associated, in part at least, with Briseis, the concubine he lost. In both Achilles and, and Menelaus, this, I think, is a picture of aggression undifferentiated from the sexual transgression that gave rise to it. A new element is a new kind of undertowing theme is now coming into the poem. Earlier still, Nestor, in his great patriotic speech at the end of book one, had made a lot of high-sounding comments about how, how important it is to be noble and daring and, and proud and how, how his background was so uh, marvelous and so on and so forth. And then almost as an afterthought at the end of the speech, he says, Therefore, let no man press for our return before he beds down with some Trojan wife to avenge the struggles and the groans of Helen. In other words, there is an addition to all the rest of this more overt heroic value or values. There is this other thing, which is a kind of sublimated longing to make love to the enemy women. Let's not leave until we each take a Trojan wife. René Girard, in that same volume I quoted from last week, says, Like violence, sexual desire tends to fasten upon surrogate objects if the object to which it was originally attached remains inaccessible. It willingly accepts substitutes. And again, like violence, repressed sexual desire accumulates energy that sooner or later bursts forth, causing tremendous havoc. It is also worth noting that the shift from violence to sexuality and from sexuality to violence is easily affected. So the channel made by the cult rituals of whatever kind for draining off toward the stranger excess and community-threatening aggression has flowing in it also excess and community-threatening sexuality. And these commingle. 
and become part of that of that complex that Homer is investigating, that aggressive, vengeful self-assertion. It, it's a kind of anthropological version of attraction-repulsion. It's like, how are we going to put the world back together again? We can either do it by annihilating the other or by copulating with them. You, you, you see what I'm trying to say? How do we eliminate the otherness of the situation? We can annihilate them or we can make love with them. Overt link between killing and copulation. He says, snarls at, at uh, Alexandros for backing away. Alexandros, by the way, backs away when he sees Menelaus. And... Uh, cowardly runs back into the crowd and Hector uh, Hector uh, uh, condemns him roundly and he says why so you're not going to stand up to Menelaus he said you ought to stand up to Menelaus you might find out something he said you might find out that none of Aphrodite's favors will do, do you any good when you lay down to make love in the dust when you lay down to make love in the dust in other words there is he, right after all of this he makes a connection between the love-making impulse and the violent impulse, the aggressive impulse. Denis de Rougemont wrote a book called Love in the Western World. And I, I read these passages merely as a, an allusion to a much larger, more detailed argument, some of which is wrong, but some of which is right, I think. The notion of personal valor and of warlike feats rep represented by the duel, what's going to happen here in a minute is a one-to-one is a -one duel, and by prowess, the notion of regulating the conduct of battles according to the quasi-sacred etiquette, the view that military life must be ascetic, rules for set settling who should be victor, and finally the close parallel between erotic and military symbolism. All that never ceased to determine the modes of making war throughout the ages. For instance, says de Rougemont, as a teaser, the last surviving formalities of love were swept away by the War of 1914. And I would emphasize the symbolical fact that we have stopped making formal declarations of love at the very time we have allowed wars to begin without any declaration either. So that any alteration in military tactics may be looked upon as related to an alteration in the notions of love and vice versa. And what we're going to see is an alteration in the cult rituals designed to take the place of overt war. If they can arrange it, this is the next cultural attempt. You see, the blood sacrifices stopped working. Well, what could we do? Well, the next thing is that we could have a duel between the two primary contenders. And they're really contending for Helen. These are the two primary contenders, Menelaus and Alexandros. That would be the next cultural option. Much could be said about that, the anthropological shift from one to the other, but most important thing would be is if they could surround it with the proper ritual safeguards it would allow for this it would cause the same thing to happen that the ritual sacrifice would cause to happen namely that there would be the a, a death of someone that would not cause revenge and would prevent the war the single combat is postponed while we bring helen on stage the goddess iris goes to fetch helen she found her weaving 
in the woman's hall. So let's just stop for a second. First picture of Helen, it's very important, at the loom, weaving. What is she weaving? The artifacts in this poem are tremendously important. First of all, the loom is the symbol of the creative feminine role. It is it, it corresponds in some ways to the to the staff. It corresponds in other ways to the shield of Achilles in book 18. We'll talk about that when we get there. What's she weaving? A double violet stuff whereon inwoven were many passages of arms by Trojan horsemen and Achaeans mailed in bronze, trials braved for her sake at the war god's hand. In other words, it's a picture of trying to make civilization out of, out of, in the context of a war. Helen is, is a utterly fascinating figure in this poem. She's sitting at the loom, I would suggest, trying to find herself. She is undefined. She is neither Trojan nor Greek. She is neither mortal nor immortal. She is virginal in the deepest sense of that word. Namely, she belongs to no man and no man's tribe. She and to, in another way, Achilles, are the two figures in this poem who are outside of culture. They have broken out of cultural containment and they are both suffering the existential identity crisis that that entails. And both of them will need to have an artifact on which to work out that identity. And the artifact for Helen is the weaving on which she can only weave scenes of war. She, like Homer and Van Gogh and Eliot, is an artist in that existential sense of finding themselves outside of cultural containment and trying to work out their identity crisis in relation to an artifact, a poem, a painting, a book. And I brought a poem about that. It's by, it's by Gunther Eich. It's called Inventory, translated from the German. He had been in a prison camp, and he writes these lines. This is my cap. This is my coat. Here's my shaving gear in the linen bag, tin can, my plate, my cup. I scratched my name and the tin coating, scratched it with this precious nail that I hide from greedy eyes. Outside, in, a, in the concentration camp, being outside of all those cultural reinforcements of my identity, my, I find that my identity goes right into the ground. And then, it is then that I will find an artifact, a poem, a book, a tin can, and work with respect to that artifact on discovering that identity. That's why the Bible has always been so important. That's why we're people of the book. She's been, she's been uh, weaving scenes of war. Now she has to go out there and look at the thing itself. She goes to the wall. Those of you who have the stamina for it, come September we're going to uh, 
read John Neihardt's Cycle of the West, and there's a Helen in that poem, too. And here's what, after we get a look at her, here's what the poet has to say about the whole archetype. He says, And was she fair, this woman? Legend keeps no answer. Yet we know that she was young, if truly comes the tale of, by many a tongue, that one of Red Hair's party fathered her. What need we know her features as they were? Was she not lovely as her lovers thought? And beautiful as that wild love she wrought was fatal? Vessel of the world's desire, did she not glow with that mysterious fire that lights the hearth or burns the roof tree down? That mysterious fire that lights the hearth or burns the roof tree down. There you have Helen's fundamental ambiguity and for herself, her own uh, ambivalence about who she really is and where she belongs. And the old men of Troy know, know also this ambiguity. They know that she is the one who lights the heart and the one who burns the roof tree down. And they see her and they say, of course we'll fight a war for her. And the next line they say, but I wish she'd go home. See? They know it's both true. And Priam is gracious. He says, you're not to blame. He says, come up here and tell me who these warriors are out there. She knows them, of course, because she used to live among them. He, Prime says, who's that big guy out there? And she she has a little soliloquy before she answers this question. She says, painful death, painful death would have been sweeter for me on that day I joined your son and left my bridal chamber, my brothers, my grown child, my childhood friends. But no death came, though I have pined and wept. Your question now. Yes, I can answer it. That man is Agamemnon, son of Atreus, lord of the plains of Argos, ever both a good king and a formidable soldier, brother to the husband of a wanton. Or was that life a dream? Hmm? Very sympathetic figure, Helen is. Well, Homer does an absolutely fabulous thing here. When Helen is looking out, we're all looking out at the at the duel that's about to happen. And we then sort of go behind the scenes for a second and watch the two contestants prepare for battle. The time had come, and Prince Alexandros, consort of Helen, buckled on his armor, first the greaves well molded to his shins, with silver ankle circlets, then round his chest the cuirass of his brother, Lycaon, a good fit for him, he slung the sword of bronze with silver-studded hilt by a baldric on his shoulder. Over this, a shield strap and a many-layered shield. Then drew a helmet from, excuse me, drew a helmet with the horsetail crest upon his head, upon his gallant brow, the tall plume like a wave crest grimly tossing. He picked out finally a solid spear with his own hand grip. Meanwhile, the great soldier Menelaus put on his equipment. <laughs> oh, isn't it wonderful? <laughs> oh, I'm telling you. Alexandros is dressing for a stage performance. He is preparing to go on stage. Menelaus, the great soldier, is preparing to go on the shop floor. <laughs> Oh, boy. 
obviously Alexandros gets the the uh, Menelaus gets the best of the situation. Aphrodite, his patron, comes in and saves him, covers him in a mist, takes him to his fragrant bedchamber, right from plucks him right out of the battle, takes him to his bedroom, and goes to get Helen. Because she two reasons I think she does that. She does that for two reasons. One is to put this stunning juxtaposition of war-making and love-making right together. And secondly, Homer is now going not... He's going to reenact for us the original seduction. She says, come with me. Alexandros invites you. He's in his bedroom now. You'd hardly think he'd been fighting a war. He looks like he's just come from the dance. So she described him, and Helen's heart beat faster in her breast. She is aroused, but she hates it. She says to Aphrodite, O immortal madness, why do you have this craving to seduce me? Take your place beside Alexandros. Be unhappy for him. Shield him till at last he marries you, or, as he will, enslaves you. And Aphrodite threatens her, and she goes along. And when she gets to the bedroom, she sits down next to Alexandros. Helen, daughter of Zeus, beyond the storm cloud, took her seat with downcast eyes and greeted him. Home from the war? You should have perished there, brought down by that strong soldier once my husband. Just tremendous disgust for this whole thing she's caught up in. Paris, ever glib, ever cheery. Well, he says we lost we lost one today, but maybe we'll win one tomorrow. Let us drop war now, you and I, and give ourselves to pleasure in our bed. My soul was never so possessed by longing. He says, I'm as I'm as sexually ready now as I have ever been. Plucked right off the battlefield. Remember that? Rene Girard said the shift from violence to sexuality and from sexuality to violence is easily affected. He went to bed and she went with him, and in the the inlaid ivory bed these two made love, while Menelaus roamed the ranks like a wild beast hunting the godlike man Alexandra. Their lovemaking is turning Menelaus into a beast. And by extension all the rest of the Greeks and Trojans. Helen's social ambiguity and psychological and sexual ambivalence is part of who she is. And Yeats gives us a sort of mythological genealogy of Helen in his poem, Leda and the Swan. It's the story of her conception. Feel the tremendous ambivalence in the lines I'm going to quote to you. A sudden blow, the great wings beating still. In other words, what happened to what happened to Helen just now in the poem happened to her mother Leda at her conception. A sudden blow, the great wings beating still above the staggering girl, her thighs caressed by the dark webs, her nape caught in his bill. He holds her helpless breast against his breast. Feel the ambivalence of these lines. How can those terrified vague fingers push the feathered glory from her loosening thigh? You feel that ambiguity? 
And how can body laid in that white rush but feel the strange heart beating where it lies? A shudder in the, in the loins engenders there the broken wall, the burning roof and tower, and Agamemnon dead. Well, it's who she is. She's a product of that rape, and it is, that that, it is the consequences of that that she's trying to work out on her loom. And now she's in bed with Alexandra. And I must quote another poem, Donald Justice, the two, two tercets from a Donald Justice poem. He's really referring to the image in the Inferno of uh, Paolo and Francesca, but it applies here so aptly. It always, this sense of passionlessness with which Helen and Alexandros fall into bed, self-disgust and passionlessness, it always comes, and when it comes, they know. To will it is enough to bring them there. The knack is this, to fasten and not let go. Their limbs are charmed. They cannot stay or go. Desire is limbo. They're unhappy there. It always comes, and when it comes, they know. The pun, of course, is on the word come. It always comes, and when it comes, they know. Tremendous sense of emptiness. And after all, Helen is barren. They, Homer doesn't mention it, but he need not mention it. She and Alexandros have been together for nine plus years. No children. Well, this is a reenactment of the original offense, and now we have to get the other element of the original offense, and that is what it does to Menelaus. Athena comes along. It looks like the war might, the whole thing might come to an end because Agamemnon has declared that Menelaus is the victor because Paris is gone. Athena won't have it be that way. She wants to Troy destroyed. So she picks the right candidate, candidate uh, Pandarus, and she gets him to shoot an arrow and try to kill, but essentially wound Menelaus. She deflects the arrow so it's just a wound. The point passed onward through the loin guard next his belly plated against spearheads shielding him most now yet the point entered and gouged the warrior's mortal skin a little reference here about where he gets wounded well we're not quite sure except it pierced the loin guard and uh and then it says then dark blood rippled in a clouding stain down from the wound as when a Meonian or a Carian woman dies clear ivory to be the cheek piece of a chariot team. Though horseman after horseman longs to carry it, the artifact lies in a storeroom kept for a great lord, a splendor doubly prized, his team's adornment and his driver's glory. So, Menelaus, were your ivory thighs dyed and suffused with running blood. Very oblique about the wound here. But it's deflected and hits him in the loin guard and blood runs down his ivory thighs. I think there's sufficient Homeric evidence for a wounding at the sexual level or, or at least close enough to, to, um, to see that as part of Menelaus's great raid. You see, the, the simile here is everybody, all warriors would like to have this wound because 
It is what gives them that great warrior-like passion. To, to have an offense at this level allows them to draw up stores of energy that could not be tapped otherwise. It allows them to win honor. But the cost is family life, the preservation of which is paradoxically the most legitimate excuse for the war that destroys it. The war then breaks out. The truce is over. The truce is broken by this wound. And war breaks out. And uh, Homer refers to it with a simile and then a little statement. I want to quote these two. Think now of the shepherd's staff and the commander's staff. And here comes the war, and it's, Homer sees it this way. Like a dark cloud a shepherd from a hilltop sea, a storm, a gloom over the ocean traveling shoreward under the west wind, distant from his eyes more black than pitch it seems, though far at sea, with lightning squalls driven along its front, shivering at the sight, he drives his flock for shelter into a cavern. Grim as that were the dense companies that armed for war. So the shepherding function of that staff has to go underground while the martial war-making operation sweeps over the land. The armies join, and when they join, again, this great ambivalence, a great din rose in one same air, elation and agony of men destroying and destroyed and earth a stream with blood. Elation and agony. There is finally a place in which it is okay to vent all of that pent-up aggression and violence. And the elation is that there are no rules. You can live it out. And there you have it. If it can't be dealt with in any other way, we will find the opportunity uh, to go out in some field someplace and live it out literally. And that's where the I think that's where the elation comes. Finally, this unlived energy, this repressed violence, and to some extent repressed sexuality, will find a place to to uh, come out. If we put ourselves in the tradition of the Iliad, there is planet Earth, see, there is no outside tribe on which we can, towards which we can siphon off our aggression safely, you know, with impunity. They don't exist anymore. I mean, we can, we can, uh, you know, we can only, there are only so many grenades around. And then what? Well, then, you know, the chicken comes home to roost. How are we going to deal with that aggression? Uh, we have to go back now to find out, to, to see if some transformation of it can't take place. And I think 3,000-year-old poem has things to teach us in that regard, particularly if it's read as Old Testament. That is to say, what made the reading 
of the Exodus story so powerful to the first century Christians was that they they were reading it through the lens of crucifixion. And I think likewise what makes the reading of this Old Testament so powerful is to read it through that lens and suddenly you see, my God, it, it just all opens up.